have a Bible, we're going to open up to 1 Samuel 8 to conclude what we began last week. Um, uh, our text in 1 Samuel is going to be short, uh, but we are going to be turning to some other scriptures later on in the message. Um, as we will do tonight, and we usually do, we often throw scriptures up on the screen, and we'll do that tonight again. But there's some later on in the message that I want you to see with your eyes and see in your own Bible and bookmark in your Bibles for a specific reason or two specific reasons. So we'll get to that in a little while. So uh, hopefully uh, um, uh, you'll, uh, you'll look forward to that. Uh, but t- tonight uh, we are going to uh, continue in 1 Samuel 8. And we looked at two major points last week. If you were with us, if you weren't, we'll catch you up really quickly. 1 Samuel 8, we looked at two major points. The first one, or, or the, the, the two come from this conversation between God and the people of Israel, or the people of Israel and Samuel and God. They come to God, or they come to Samuel, and they ask him for a king. They come to Samuel and say, Samuel, you're old. We don't want to be ruled by a judge anymore who's, le- who's, who's you know, leading from God's word and leading from God's law and, and letting God be the one who's king. We want a real, physical, breathing king like the rest of the world has. Um, and, and one of the points that God told Samuel that we looked at last week, God told Samuel, first thing I want you to do, Samuel, is I don't want you to take this personal because you're going to be tempted to feel like they're rejecting you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They have said to me that they don't like the way we've been running things. I know you're in between me and them, and you feel like it's a, a, an, an attack or, a, or you know, a slight against you. Don't take it personal. So we talked about how if we're going to serve God and stay faithful and not get discouraged, we've got to have thick skin. It's one of the most important lessons you learn in, uh, as, as a young minister in Bible college or just training under other pastors. You learn how to have the importance of having thick skin. And this is important for any church member, anybody that's serving in any capacity uh, at home or at church or anywhere in between. Um, when people don't respond to what you are trying to do for them or what you are trying to do in Jesus' name and around them and involving them, it's tempting to feel like that's a slight against us. It's tempting to get discouraged and defeated. But the Bible says, and God says to you and me, do not get discouraged, do not get defeated. And if you do get discouraged and if you do get defeated, bring that stuff to me. You can't handle that. If you dwell on that and you let that get fester in your mind, it will defeat you. But you bring that discouragement and you bring that defeat to me I'm tough enough to handle it. You just keep your head down. And when you feel like they're rejecting you and they're against you, you just keep your eyes on the Lord. And and the Bible teaches us. This is so important. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, one of my favorite verses, one of the verses that you should memorize. Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. But that's a big qualifier there. If we do not give up, as in if you get discouraged and you get defeated because people reject you or don't respond to you, remember, we're not serving them ultimately. We're serving the Lord. And our reward is not going to come from people. Our reward is not going to come from somebody saying, good job, or I'm thankful for you. It would be great if they did that stuff and ideal if they do that stuff. And Christians should do that stuff to each other. We should be great. We should be kind. We should be thankful. The sad reality is in the world that we live in, that's not always the case, especially when we're trying to help and, 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 and serve outsiders or people that aren't Christians. Yet, we must remember that we are not serving them. Ultimately, we're serving the Lord and God has a reward for those that remain faithful and do not give up. So, as God told Samuel, God tells us, they're not rejecting you. 
They're rejecting me. You keep doing the job I've called you to do. You let me be your reward. You let me be your comfort, and I'll sort out them. So that was the first point. Now, the second point, which was more prominent, was uh, the reason that Israel wanted a king in the first place. Remember that infamous request, give us a king, make us a king, make us like all the rest of the world. Now, we talked about this was really the most egregious part of the, 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 uh, of the story. Um, uh, they had total disregard for God's vision. They did, they did not want to be as he desired them to be. They wanted to be like the rest of the world. They were designed and they were destined to be unlike the rest of the world. They were meant to stand out among the nations as a light. They didn't have to have a king from the beginning because God was their king. He was calling them to be a different kind of nation, a nation that was answering to him and accountable to him. But they didn't want that. Now, the entire backbone of the Bible is that God's people are not to be like the rest of the world, that we're supposed to be different in, in all areas, from our ethics to our morals to our motives and to our outlooks. Israel wanted a king, and, and what, was that a, that, what was that a symptom of? Israel wanted to be a kingdom like all the others. They wanted to be power-hungry, resource-stacked, aggressive, and hostile. They wanted to take over. They wanted to conquer. They wanted to be full of power and full of prosperity and full of the things that they thought were important. God says, that's not what I will for you. I want you to trust me. Israel wanted a king. They wanted to be like the rest of the world. Now, really, Israel is just a bigger example of our own nature. Human nature it wants, wants that power and wants that, that ability to do what it wants to, when it wants to, with whom it wants to. We don't want that accountability with God. Uh, Israel wanted a king that would say, hey, do what you want to do. Do what the rest of the world is doing. Um, that's where the Christian faith comes in and says to all of us uh, that we're not to be like other people, not to be like the other nations, not to be like the world. Uh, we are to be different. And, and we talked about how this, what this looks like and, and how this is realized. And it's rooted in a God first, others first, attitude and actions. That's what God is calling us to be, and that's why we're, that's, that's how we can be different than the other nations, different than the rest of the world. Israel thought to be great, to be famous, and to be prosperous and powerful, they had to be like the rest of the world. They had to measure up to the rest of the world, but that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not, does not measure greatness like the rest of the world does. This should remind us, and if it doesn't, I'll remind you of it. Uh, this should remind us of this famous exchange between Jesus and his disciples when they were on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, there's this thread throughout the Gospels where everyone is expecting Jesus to take over Israel as its king. And everyone is expecting that God is going to make Israel a kingdom like all the other kingdoms. Have you heard that before? Make us a kingdom like the rest of the world. Give us a king like the rest of the world. Rome was the empire in control. The Jews had this idea that God was going to give them a Messiah and the Messiah was going to make them a kingdom and then that kingdom was going to take over Rome and all that Rome was doing to the world, Israel was going to get to do to the world. Rome was ruling, Israel was going to rule. Rome was taking care of its enemies, Israel was going to take care of its enemy. Rome was in number one, Israel was going to be number one. So Jesus' followers unashamedly thought that he was going to be that king, he was going to be that Messiah, and every miracle he performed, every sign and wonder he manifested, they rubbed their hands together and they thought, we are one step closer to power, we are one step closer 
to prosperity. We are one step closer to making history. Of course, Jesus knew their heart and he kind of teases them along and he kind of draws out this shameless desire so that he can tell them what the kingdom of God is going to actually be like. How they weren't going to be like the rest of the world, not going to be a kingdom like the other kingdoms. So throughout the gospels, especially Mark's, there's this tension that is building. Jesus' disciples are constantly whispering and making plans about installing Jesus as king, making him king, having a parade where they declare him king and hopefully he'll take the bait. They believe there's this inevitable ascension to power and if you read the gospels, there's this infighting in the group. Every few chapters you'll read that they're arguing with each other about who Jesus likes best. And they're all thinking, okay, well, he's been favoring us more, so maybe I'm going to be number two, number three, number four, so on and so forth in his kingdom because clearly a king's going to have a right-hand man and a left-hand man and a general and a, and a you know, ambassador and all these things, and we want to be first in line. So Jesus knew this was building. And on one occasion, he kind of called it out. When they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, he knew they were arguing that. They didn't tell him because they knew that he would reprimand them for it. So later on, James and John, um, they actually asked their mom to do a favor for them. Uh, which is really kind of a pathetic story. But James and John's mom goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I know that you love my boys the best. And I would like for you to make them your right hand and left hand men in your kingdom. I know you're about to install a kingdom. You're about to make a kingdom that's going to take over the world. Would you make James your right hand guy and John your left hand guy? They're better than the rest, aren't they? And Jesus preaches a sermon just to them because they're behind their mom, you know, as she's doing their bartering for them. And he preaches to them that they, number one, they don't realize what's about to happen to him. He's not about to sit on a throne and take over the world. He's about to be crucified. And he says, I don't know if y'all want to go through what I'm about to go through. I don't think you're able to go through what I'm about to go through. And and meanwhile, the rest of the crowd is, is watching and listening to this. And they think... Jesus is giving them secret intel. They think Jesus is telling James and John, and they're even telling their mom, Jesus is giving them insight that he's not giving us, and they start getting very jealous and very angry. And here's how all that wraps up. When the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John because they thought that while they're having that private conversation, that Jesus is actually confirming or answering their request. And that's not what happened, of course. And Jesus says, okay, I'll just preach the sermon to all of you. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, or when somebody's in charge, they let you know they're in charge. They rub it in your face, and they roll their sleeves up, and they flex their muscles, and they show off all their power. They show off all their money. They show off all their, their, their you know, toys and all the things. In, in kingdoms that are in charge, they love to... You take over and love to push over and love to let you know they're number one. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they're great ones. They exercise authority over those that are less powerful. He says, y'all know that's how the kingdoms of the world work, don't you? And they're sitting there thinking, yeah, and we can't wait till we get to do our, have our turn. But Jesus says this, it shall not be so among you. 
That is not how the kingdom of God operates. That's not how the church of Jesus Christ is going to operate. That's not how we are to leverage the power of God. That it is not for us to say, hey, look at me, we're in control, you have to answer to me, as if we're, we have unlimited ability to do as we want, when we want, with whom we want. That's not what it means to be a Christian. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be last, must be a slave. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. This, this is the main idea that, the, that God has in mind when he says we are to be different, unlike the rest of the world. I think, that, I, think, I think that there's a powerful and effective message behind this. If we are servants of one another, that if we are living our life, leveraging our lives as servants of one another, that means we, can't, we cannot sin against one another. We cannot sin with one another. We cannot sin because for you to sin against somebody, that means you have to use them or you are abusing them. If you sin with somebody, you're still using them and you're abusing them because you know it's wrong. They might not know it's wrong or they may. It doesn't matter because you're the one that answers for you. When you sin with somebody, when you sin against somebody, you are lording over them. You are taking advantage of them. You are abusing them. You are using them. A lot of people, a lot of people use others and abuse others and the others don't realize they're being used or abused. Y'all, that, that makes sense? A lot of people in this life who have power and are in power use others and abuse others and we think, well, well, they don't know. They don't know that I'm taking them for a ride. They don't know that I'm taking advantage of them. They don't know that I shouldn't be doing this. And maybe they don't know and maybe it won't hurt them, but guess what? You know who it's gonna hurt one day? The user and the abuser. Because one day that power will be ripped away and that manipulative and that control that they have will be taken away. Then what will be left in their hands? Then what will be left in our hands? Nothing. This is why God wanted Israel to be different. This is why he wants us to be different. Because our aspirations, our goals are set on better heights, better destinations. And let me just say this. If you have to break God's law, if you have to use and abuse others to advance in life, number one, it'll never be worth it. Number two, it shows your heart is tethered to the wrong things altogether. If you have to disobey God and by virtue take advantage of others or abuse others or use others in the process, then that shows that you have your heart set on the wrong goal altogether. That's why Israel was where they were in the first place. Their heart was far from where it should have been. They wanted a king like the rest of the world. They wanted to use and abuse. They wanted power. They wanted independence. They did not want to be submitted to God. They did not want God's will. They wanted their will, their way on their terms. That's the dream of this world. But we are not of this world. Here's the thing, and I want to look down at 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 22, and I want to read how God responds 
to this request. Because Samuel warns them that they don't want to live in a world where their king is not God, where their king is some lesser person, some man. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. Not, just, not that we want one. We will not accept no for an answer. And a strange thing happens. It, it, it goes on to say that we may be like all the nations. Our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice, make them a king. Now, maybe you've never thought about this, but it's one thing for Israel to want a king. It's one thing to want something that God did not want for them. But let's just be honest, and let's just face the facts. Doesn't God have the ability to say no to them? When your kids ask for something that you don't want them to have and isn't good for them, you have the ability, or you should have the ability, and you exercise the ability to say, no, I'm not going to give you that because it's bad for you. It's not good for you, right? Even when the kids can't see it and they don't understand it. We were there. We were kids once, right? We, we still want things that we shouldn't want. That's what Israel was doing. But doesn't God have the ability to say, no? And even if they do go and make a king for themselves... And if God isn't involved or they don't involve God, doesn't God have the ability to step in and say, hey, hey, not so fast? I mean, they're literally coming to God saying, God, we want you to give us a king, even though God said, I don't want to give you a king. I don't, that's not my plan. They're insistent. And God says a very strange thing. God gives in. The God of the universe who controls everything, who doesn't need us to do anything that he does. He says, okay, you want it? I'll give it to you. But why didn't he then say, hey, not, why, why, didn't he, why, why didn't he say, no, why didn't he say, that's not my plan? Now, maybe you don't know this, but there's an untold chapter of Israel's history where that happened, where God, where the people of Israel wanted a king and God said, no, I'm not gonna give you a king, but they got a king anyway. And then God got involved and messed it all up. Maybe you don't know this story, but there's a story in the book of Judges. Judges, the Judges generation that took place just before 1 Samuel. There's a story in the book of Judges, and everybody, I think, remembers the story of Gideon. Gideon is the reluctant hero, the humble man who uh, he was actually so scared of the Midianites who were oppressing the land. He was threshing wheat in a cellar, in a wine cellar. And you don't thresh wheat in a wine cellar, you thresh wheat in the open air so the wind can pick up the chaff. But Gideon was literally separating the wheat from the chaff in a basement because he was so scared to be out in the public and potentially be uh, taken captured, taken captive by the Midianites. So Gideon was not the guy you would think would be the next judge. Yet God came to him and said, uh, you know, the, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, I'm not mighty and I don't know what valor means, but I don't have it. Gideon uh, was very, very unsure about serving the Lord. Remember, he puts the fleece out because he's so, so uncertain that God, and he, he asked God for, to give him confirmation on confirmation on confirmation. And God says, Gideon, you should just trust me. And Gideon says, no, I want proof. Gideon was a very, a very reluctant servant. But the Bible says that Gideon, God uses Gideon to make, uh, to, to do miracles. God uses Gideon and 300 subpar warriors to fight a battle and they win the battle against the Midianites. But uh, the story goes on, and, and this is probably where your memory maybe fades because this isn't a story we talk a lot about in church. Gideon had a son named Abimelech. 
Abimelech was uh, not like his father, whereas Gideon was very reluctant and very humble. Abimelech was very proud and very power-hungry. Um, so the story goes that Abimelech is ruthless and very reckless. He leads the nation in corruption. He hires bounty hunters to help him hunt down people that are opposed to him and that are against him. And he scares the elders of Israel into making him their king. So long before 1 Samuel 8, Judges chapter 9, the story goes, the elders of Israel, the leaders of Shechem came together at, in all of Beth Malo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So again, the first king of Israel, God was not involved in this at all. Well, he got involved in it, actually. The scripture says that Israel made a king against God's will without involving God. And then the Bible says in verse 22 that Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem begin to deal treacherously with Abimelech. So God gets involved. Not the kind of spirit you want to have come down and dwell with you. I'll tell you that. God gets involved and God says, okay, y'all made a king against my will. Y'all want to be your own nation. Y'all want to operate without me. That doesn't work. Y'all cannot do that. I'm your God, I'm your king, so you, gave, you made a king, I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to mess all of this up. So the people that installed him as king begin to rebel against him, and it's just a civil war for three years. Uh, Abimelech um, didn't get to be the lavish, uh, luxurious king that he wanted to be. He just has this constant battle that he fights. And again, they didn't ask God. God says, Hey, wait a minute. And God begins to cause turmoil and listen to how the story ends. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now, I know that's gruesome, and it's a little bit distracting from our other story, but here's the message. God didn't approve of him as their king. He frustrated his intentions, and God took him out. So here we are all these years later. Israel asked for a king. God, who could have said no, or who could have said, well, go ahead, but I'm, I'm going to let you know what I think about that. God is going to give them what they ask for. What do, we, what do we make of that? There's an important message here that we're going to wrap up talking about that's very, very, very important that doesn't get talked about enough in church. Sometimes what God allows and what God enables is not necessarily reflective of his will. Let me say that again. Sometimes what God allows what God enables, what God causes to happen is not necessarily reflective of his will, but a result of our continued rebellion and disregard for him. But make no mistake, God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one that allowed it to happen that what transpires is just as much under his rule as if it would have been the way he wanted to from the beginning. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, maybe it should, because we all run the risk of inviting and welcoming this reality on our lives if we are not devoted, if we are not pure at heart. 
Now, the reality that I'm talking about, the reality that Israel steps into, into the next chapter and beyond, is the permissive will of God. You've probably heard of that before, the permissive will of God. God has a perfect will for you, but he also has a permissive will for you. Let's talk about that perfect will for just a minute. God's perfect will is enjoyed and maintained when we remain submitted and we surrender to him in thought and word and deed in heart and in mind. So I wanna give you four key passages that you can turn with me and look at if you'd like to. Four key passages, four key scriptures that highlight the perfect will of God. Four key passages that I wanna just breeze through very quickly. I would love for you to write these down. I'd love for you to go and study these on your own, in depth, focused throughout the next day or so or as you study your Bible. I think the number one passage about the perfect will of God is Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, which you probably have heard before. You probably can even quote these verses, whether you know they're from Romans 12 or not. Romans 12, one and two, tell us how we can be in the will of God and remain in the perfect will of God. Romans 12, one and two says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and there's our word, perfect will of God. So how can you be in the perfect will of God? How can you remain in the perfect will of God? Be submissive and surrender to him and welcome his way and ask him to transform you that you would not be conformed to this world. If you want to know what is the perfect will of God, how do I find it? How do I keep it? How do I stay in it? Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a scripture that you need to memorize, write down. And of course, you got to read the rest of the Bible to get more into that, but that's a good starting place. But here's what we need to know about the perfect will of God. God's perfect will doesn't just apply when things feel perfect or when things go perfectly around us. We can experience God's perfect will even in hardships. There are some that wrongly teach that God's will will never lead us into valleys, which is the farthest thing from the truth, which is why that second passage is, is important. Because in Luke chapter 8, if you want to flip back there, Luke chapter 8, 22 and 23, it tells us, that there is an occasion where Jesus leads his people into a storm. Luke chapter eight says that it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, here's the key phrase, let us go over to the other side, as in, hey, we're going across. No question, we're going across. But in order for us to go across, verse 23, he falls asleep and a storm came down. Now, I think it's important that we read those words, a storm came down, because where did the storm came down, come down from? The heavens. Where did the storm come from? Well, it came from nature. Who is in charge of nature? God. So this is, a, this is an example of God's perfect will sometimes leading us in a direction that we might not think is very perfect. But who's the one that said get in the boat? Jesus. Who's the one that said we're going to get across the, across the lake? Jesus. Who's the one that sent the storm? Jesus. So 
can we confirm that God's perfect will does not always require perfect setting and perfect surroundings as we deem perfect. Sometimes God leads us into a storm, but it might be that storm that we have to go through in order to get to where he wants us to go. So that's just encouraging you tonight that if you think, well, if you feel like, well, my circumstances aren't perfect, so does that mean I'm not in God's will? That's not necessarily the case, and it probably isn't the case. But the devil wants to get you discouraged and get you upset and get you feeling as if, hey, you know, things aren't going well, so I must. That's not, God's perfect will is about you being submitted to his plan and you being surrendered to him and allowing him to take you the direction that he wants you to go in. Remember, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed, not my will, but thy will be done, right? And of course, God took him to the cross after that. Then there's the story of Joseph. Joseph uh, is the story of how God leverages the evil done to him for a greater purpose. Joseph got to see the purpose realized because his, he remained faithful through it all to the point that this was his testimony. Genesis 50, 20, you can read that on your own. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You meant this to destroy me. God meant this to save many. God's perfect will is about us staying close to him. Psalm 23, you can read those scriptures. Psalm 23 verse says, who will ascend to God's hill? Who will dwell in God's presence? Those that have a pure heart and clean hands. So, so what about, that's, that's the perfect will of God. What about the permissive will of God? What is that? Well, 1 Samuel, God relents and gives to Israel the king they asked for. We know that God works all, thing, all this out. We know that he's going to ultimately give them a good king and he's going to use that to bring them aside. We know that God worked this out for good. That doesn't mean that we should not pay attention to when our desires are not in line with God's will because that was the, the case for Israel. And God gave them over. God says, go ahead, take what you want. Go ahead. So two passages that you should make a note of for God's permissive will. I want you to especially look at Romans 1, and I'll tell you what happens in Proverbs 7. Romans 1, verses 20, 24 and 25. This is, this is the permissive will of God explained very, very, very briefly, very, very clearly. Therefore, God also gave them up to the uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to desire their, to dishonor their bodies or dishonor their lives among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So the permissive will is when God says to you and he God, God says to me, hey, you wanna do what you wanna do? You wanna you know, pl indulge your body, indulge your flesh? You wanna, make, you wanna serve the creature instead of the creator and live for this world and not for me? That's fine, go ahead and get it. And God turns us loose. And, and I know this might, not, this might sound contrary to the truth, to what you think. But this is the mercy of God at work. God is so merciful, he will never force you to do anything you do not want to do. God is so merciful and so tender that he will not force you. He is not a, 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 a puppeteer. You're not on marionette strings. He gives you free will. There's a perfect will. There's a permissive will. And if you don't want his will, he will say, I've got a plan B for you. You're not gonna like it. But if that's what you want, go ahead. If we get numb to what he says and continually choose our way instead, we don't have anyone to blame when our destination is not where we wanted to be but ourselves. 
So let me wrap up by telling you this story about Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 is a story that Solomon tells. Solomon says, hey, I want to talk to you about what the permissive will of God is like. Solomon says, I was looking out of my balcony one day and I saw a young man. This guy thought he was the rock star. He thought he was the king of the world. This guy is living up his life and he is, he is, he is looking for, in this case, love in all the wrong places. He's looking for his future in all the wrong places. Solomon says, I saw this guy and he has his eyes on this woman. And this woman is a married woman, yet her husband is far away for a while. This woman uh, behaves as if she is of a profession uh, to, to solicit herself, yet she's not, she's not that. Um, she's, just, uh, she's just got her eyes open and, and looking for young men like this. So this young man sees this woman coming and, and, and she says, hey, I've been to the temple and I've dumped my sin bucket at the altar and I'm clean and ready to fill it back up. She says, hey, I went to church and I confessed my sins, but hey, it's time to sin some more. And he hears her say this and he's like, well, that makes sense. I guess God just brought you to me. And he, she says to him, hey, my, my husband's off on a trip. He's not gonna be back for a long time. I've just fixed up the place and I've had my eyes on you. I've been waiting for you to look my way. And this, this guy convinces himself that this is his destiny. This guy convinces himself that Clearly, God has opened this door for him. He's been looking in her direction for years. He's been thinking about her, waiting for her, even though it was all wrong. He was married, she was married. All this stuff was not, again, not in God's plan. Even though he knew it was wrong, he kept looking, he kept looking, and God finally says, you want that? Go ahead. And she had made it so convenient for him. And it says after that that he goes to her place, and he did not realize that when he walked in her doors, he walked in in the doors of hell. Now, this isn't picking on women against men. This is just giving you an example that the boy walked into a trap set by the devil. It could be reversed. It could be a woman and a man. It could be not sexual at all. It could be some other experience in life. But he did not realize he was like a deer walking in to the into the uh, aim of an arrow. He did not realize he was walking into a trap set for an animal. And it says he did not realize he was walking through the doors of hell on earth. That's the permissive will of God. God says, you want that? I'll make it easy for you to get it. But that wasn't after we stumbled. That wasn't the case until we stumbled over grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So why does God let that happen? Why did God give Israel a king whenever he initially said no and whenever he could have stopped them? Why did God let this young man do that to himself? Because God is trying to get us to wake up and realize what we have done wrong and how we are far from him. The moral of the story is when we, when we disregard God's best and our good, we are left with regret and we are left with sorrow. God's perfect will is obtainable if we just delight in his word and rest in his spirit. Psalm 37, 4 says, God will to give, delight yourself into the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he'll give you whatever you want, but that he'll, get, he'll give you the desires that you should have. Depending on how you read that reflects whether you're in the permissive will or perfect will of God. If you read that as if, hey, God's gonna give me what I want, that's someone who is looking for permission to do what they want and get what they want without considering God's will. If you read that verse and you think, well, oh, God says he'll give me whatever I want. I guess I just gotta, you know, I, that's permissive will. But, but if you read that verse as if, hey, I want what God wants. 
I want God to put his desires in me so that I want what he wants and I'm not anywhere far from him. That's the perfect will of God. We can convince ourselves that anything is right for us if we don't consult first with the Lord and his word. But if we hide his word in our hearts and set our eyes on him, we'll make better decisions and have fewer regrets. I guess we can go ahead and assume rightly that Israel's gonna have tons of regret, but thankfully God's gonna be there to bail them out. He always is, he always is there to help us and save us, but we can save ourselves a lot of trouble if we seek his will, his perfect will first. Psalm 119 says his words will land to our feet and a light to our path. That means he'll never lead us down the wrong direction. If we want his perfect will, and of course we do, we must pursue him with purity and integrity. But it all comes down to how we approach God and how we approach him in prayer, how we approach him in devotion. So I got a question for you, two questions for you. Do we come to God looking for permission for our way or with a determination to find and remain in his way? You, you pray with one of two attitudes. You either pray asking for permission to get your way or you pray with a determination for his way. You ask for permission, you read the Bible hoping that he'll give you what you want or you read the Bible hoping that he'll show you what he wants. That's the difference in permissive and perfect. You answer, your answer to that question reveals the kind of heart that we have if you just open your eyes up to whether you are in the perfect will or in the permissive will this could be a crossroads for all of us. So I got a, another simpler question for you. Are you asking for permission or are you coming to God in submission? Are you asking for permission or are you coming to God in submission? People say, well, you know, so-and-so is not in the will of God. No, no, no. They're in the will of God regardless it makes us a little bit uncomfortable when we realize that God, God never, ever says, I, I've, I've taken my hands off the wheel. God never does that. God says, I'm still in control, but I'm permitting you to do what I don't want you to do so that hopefully you will realize before it's too late how much you need me. We're in the will of God, either permissive are perfect. So what are, what, what, where are we at? Where are you at? Think about this over the next couple of days. Are you asking for permission or are you coming to God in submission? That's the difference. There's only one right way. I think we know what that is. Israel just opened Pandora's box when they asked for a king and God says, all right, I'll give you one. And what they go through over the next couple of chapters and over the next couple of years is far from what they envisioned. Yet they asked for it. Thankfully, God's gonna be there to bail them out. But they didn't have to be in that place. They chose to be. And God allowed them to get what they wanted. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for leading us and guiding us. Lord, thank you for giving us your insight tonight that we might would not have to go down the same road that your people went through. Uh, God, thank you for making it clear to us that there is a perfect will and there is a, there is a permissive will. 
God, we all want to be in your perfect will. You've showed us in your word plainly how we can get in your perfect will. God, if there's anybody in the house tonight that would confess that they're not there and they, they, they realize that you have permitted them to go down a road that they are not proud of and that nobody, everyone realizes is not good, would you give them deliverance? Would you give them repentance? Would you give them a chance to say, I don't want to be down this road anymore? Father, for all of us as we hear this word, we want to be in your perfect will. We come to you in submission. We come to you surrendering to your will, to your way. It's your, it's your will, it's your way. We want to be right where you want us to be. We ask this and trust it all in Jesus' name. Amen.